Hello, St. Andrews. Please pray with me. Teach us your way, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth. Unite our hearts to fear your name. For Jesus' sake. Amen. I'd like to begin with a quote from a political philosopher named Yoram Hazoni, who was interviewed recently on a podcast. Quote, human beings are not very good at predicting the future, the future of political events. If we just think back over the last 30 years, almost no one predicted the fall of the Soviet Union. Almost no one of the thousands of experts employed to study the Soviet Union predicted that communism in Russia and Eastern Europe would collapse. Virtually no one predicted 9-11 and the rise of Al-Qaeda. Almost nobody predicted the collapse of the housing market in the United States and the subsequent economic collapse worldwide. And people do not foresee the rise of nationalism, not Brexit, not Donald Trump. And I dare say that not that many foresaw the sudden outburst of Marxist strength in 2020. We're not good at seeing the future. You know, as a religious person, the way that I would say it is that the big picture is not really in our hands. But if I might translate for non-religious listeners, what I mean by that is that there are these macro trends, large events that seem to come out of nowhere. Now, they don't actually come out of nowhere. When you go back historically and look at them, you can sometimes understand exactly what happened. But looking forward, we don't really know what's going to happen, end quote. The big picture isn't really in our hands. I think that statement is a good rough summary of the book of Daniel. The big picture isn't in human hands, but in God's. For pagan kings like Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar or Darius, this was a big surprise. Who else could preserve mortal human beings in an inferno? transform a mighty king into a farm animal, destroy an empire overnight, or restrain lions from their otherwise helpless human prey. None but the God of Daniel. And now that God has proven that only he rules and saves, the story shifts. We move from the historical present to visions of the future. Some of these visions are pretty out there. Why is that? A big reason has to do with genre, the genre of Daniel's latter chapters, which is apocalyptic. This doesn't mean post-nuclear zombies or a meteor strike. The word apocalyptic literally means an uncovering of what's hidden. In other words, God is giving us what humans can't otherwise get, the big picture. So just what is this big picture? Well, look first at Daniel 7, verses 21 to 22. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favour of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. You heard that right. God's people are first defeated then vindicated, and finally possess the kingdom. To read Daniel 7 to 12 correctly, you need to hold together two truths. First, that God's people will receive the kingdom of heaven. 
But second, before they do, they will suffer. This is God's word to us, a warning about a powerful enemy who's marked us out as his prey, but also encouragement that even when it looks like this enemy is winning, it's all part of God's plan and that Jesus will ultimately win. So it's my prayer that chapter 8 will help rid you of fear and surprise. This is a word to make us humble and confident sober-minded and hopeful as we wait for Jesus to bring in God's kingdom at last. So let's look at chapter 8 now. Please turn there. And the first thing to be said is that it can be divided into three neat sections. Firstly, the vision, verses 1 to 14, the interpretation in verses 15 to 26, and the reaction in verse 27. The first thing to notice is that this is a vision of future history, that is uh, history that hasn't happened yet. Uh, Andrew mentioned a few weeks ago that history is written by the winners. Perhaps that's true, even true most of the time, but the point is that history is written by someone and that someone has a perspective, which isn't to say history isn't reliable. All I mean is history is selective. You choose to write about something, and to do that, you need to include what you think is relevant and to leave out what is irrelevant. You emphasize some things and not other things. For example, imagine a New Zealander was writing a history of that country's national desserts. They'd be tempted to include the Bledisloe Cup record, but that's not relevant. In the same way, it's not relevant for them to mention Pavlova unless they're going to mention it as an Australian invention, which has sometimes been passed off as their own. We do this selective inclusion at the individual level too. Uh, When I tell you my life story, I might mention that I grew up not far from Bronte Beach, but you don't need to hear about that one time I left a floating present in the water for other swimmers. So what kind of history And what sort of details are we meant to focus on in chapter 8? It's a history of three human powers, symbolised by a ram, a goat, and a little horn. And this history zooms in on a specific future experience of affliction for the people of God. But let's start by thinking about the ram and the goat. We read in verse 3 that Daniel saw a ram. And where's the ram? Verse 2, at the city of Susa. Uh, You might have heard the real estate cliche, location, location, location. Uh, Location here is significant. Susa is hot property because it's the capital city of the first Persian Empire. Uh, When you realise that this vision is time-stamped as Belshazzar's third year on the throne, you'll realise our starting point is surprisingly not Babylon, but Persia. The angel Gabriel confirms this in verse 20. Babylon, the glorious city of Nebuchadnezzar, isn't mentioned. It's forgotten in the past, no more. What does the Persian ram get up to? Verse 4. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power 
It did as it, as it pleased and became great. But for all its might, the Persian ram isn't invincible and is soon replaced by the goat, identified in verse 21 as the king of Greece. Verses 5 to 8, we read of this Greek goat swarming through Persia and conquering everything. This goat is clearly Alexander of Macedon, also known as the Great. Alexander, whatever we may think of him, was a force of nature, but then he died in his prime. And his newly won domain was split between his four leading men, known as the successors. They set up four separate kingdoms in the territory they got. So much for the ram and the goat. All this is standard history, but then the little horn appears on stage in verse 9. Look at verse 19 now. Gabriel said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. This whole vision has led up to a specific future moment of wrath, the wrath of the little horn. From verse 9, out of one of the four horns came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Most Bible scholars think what's outlined here is the work of a man named Antiochus IV. Some background info is useful. In 175 BC, Antiochus became ruler of the Seleucid kingdom, which had been established by one of Alexander's successors. A few years before Antiochus began to rule, the Seleucids had wrested control of Palestine from a rival kingdom based in Egypt. So when Antiochus began to rule, the Israelites living in Palestine were newly under his power. You'll hear more about Antiochus IV from Josh in weeks to come because the latter narrative of Daniel sharply focuses on him. But chapter eight is more sparing of details. For now, it's enough to give a few major dot points of exactly what Antiochus IV did end up doing. He minted coins, portraying himself as Zeus come down to earth. He sold the office of Jewish high priest to a man who later gave him treasures from the temple to help finance his debts. Following a revolt in Jerusalem in 169, Antiochus sent his soldiers to kill thousands of inhabitants indiscriminately. And perhaps worst of all, in 168, he abolished circumcision and the Sabbath on pain of death, compelled sacrifice to Greek gods and censored the Old Testament scriptures. And to top it off, in 167, he built a pagan altar in the temple of Jerusalem, which he had rededicated to Olympian Zeus. And 10 days later, he offered a pig sacrifice on the altar. 
Although Daniel didn't know these specific details, he was told enough. This then is the vision. A time of tribulation will come upon God's people. A foreign ruler will try to exterminate Israel's faith. The temple will be compromised and many of God's people destroyed. This ruler will even defy God himself. It's a terrible big picture. No wonder Daniel felt sick and appalled in reaction. But the finer details we haven't got to yet make all the difference. Did you see how human power follows a pattern? A beast appears, conquers, grows great, and then is broken. The raging, the arrogance, the strength lasts for a time and then is gone. And do you know why that is? Because all human power is merely human. And to be human is to be small, mortal, limited, a creature. I think that's why this book is so interested in the emotional lives of seemingly godlike men to show that for all their splendor, they are human after all. Which is why the initially riddling 2300 evenings and days is an encouragement. Human power will rage, but it won't last forever. I think this number is best taken as 2300 literal days, which corresponds to six years of oppression under Antiochus IV. This seems to match the historical record. So the tribulation will come, but it won't last. Suffering will come, but it too will go. Nor will the destruction be total. Look at verse 14. The tribulation will take 2300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Temple worship will be restored. Israel's faith will persevere and God's people will come out the other side. And the reason behind this perseverance of the saints isn't a human one. It's God. He seems absent, but he's there behind the scenes ruling history. That's why in verse 25, when the little horn puffs out his chest at the Prince of Princes, in that moment, at the height of his arrogance and oppression, he's destroyed because God decides it's time. The big picture isn't in human hands. What are we to make of this vision and its meaning? First of all, we need to understand that we live in this history right now. Not exactly the same history, obviously, but the same pattern. Human power, patient waiting, affliction, and deliverance. Now, most of us read the news, and the news, like history, is a matter of selection, which isn't to say that news is unreliable. But it always tends to miss the real news, which is that every day, everywhere, God is gathering people to himself through his Son, the Lord Jesus the true king and true ruler of the world. And while God's people wait for King Jesus to return, rival powers are on the loose, seeking to corrupt their faith 
and or destroy their bodies. Do you recognise this? Now, we might not fear for our lives as Christians here, um, but though we don't face violence, we still experience pressure to give in to non-Christian thinking and ways of behaving. You hardly need me to tell you this because I'm sure my experience is similar to yours. Uh, This pressure and subtle opposition are part of our daily experience. And because we seem to be muddling through all right, uh, we might be tempted to think it's a manageable nuisance at worst. But the truth is, it's by God's grace that we endure. I'm close to 30 now, and all my young adult life, I've seen Christians who I didn't expect to abandon the faith. I remember one friend I had, who I no longer see, who had a tiring struggle against the deviant sexuality, which he didn't want, but had to battle. I walked with him and prayed with him all through this time. And then one day I heard he'd given up. The next time I saw him, he seemed so happy because the fight was over. But where his soul was, I fear to say. The pressure had got to him and he'd laid down and let it sweep over him. I don't know where his heart is now, but I can only pray that God has mercy on him. I don't say this to discourage you, but to remind you and myself that this opposition we face is real and deadly. So we need to be realistic, humble, and sober-minded about this reality. You know, I wasn't entirely accurate when I spoke about human power before, because the Bible tells us that behind this little horn and behind all opposition to God and his people stands the devil. And if the ancient kings and the four beasts and the ram and the goat and the little horn are all in league with the devil and they're, and they're so effective at crushing God's people, then we need to know where our confidence is. Our confidence, the first Peter passage tells us, is in the mighty hand of God who brings victory out of apparent defeat. Three Israelites defy the king's hubris and are thrown into the fire. Defeat? No, victory. They live and the king recognises God's power to save. Against the law, Daniel continues to pray and is thrown to lions. Defeat? No, victory. He emerges unscathed while his accusers become cat food. The Son of God is thrown up on a cross, humiliated, abandoned, and murdered. Defeat? No, victory. Because God raised him from the dead, saying, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The bulldozers of the Chinese Communist Party, the religious police of Iran, the anti-Christian legal code of Pakistan, the emperor worship of North Korea, the Western cult of the sexualized individual, all these arrogant experiments in resistance to King Jesus will fail and be broken. But you know who will not and cannot be broken? You. 
you can't be broken. You and me and everyone else who belongs to Jesus. For while the Christian is a person who can be targeted, opposed, pressured, bullied, rejected, and even imprisoned and killed, the Christian cannot be defeated. In 2013, in a trip to Europe, I had the privilege of visiting Philip Melanchthon's house in Wittenberg, Germany. Melanchthon was Martin Luther's closest colleague in the work of reforming the church of his day. What energised them to carry on with that humanly impossible task? A simple truth, really. On the wall of his study, viewable from Melanchthon's desk, are these words from Romans 8. Sideos pro nobis, quis est contra nos. If God is for us, who is against us? That's the big picture. Don't forget it. And finally, as Peter wrote, we ought to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may lift us up at the proper time, casting all our anxiety on him because he cares for us. Be sober-minded, be alert. Our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour him. But let us resist him, firm in our faith, knowing that the same suffering is being experienced by our brothers and sisters across the world. And after we have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen and establish us. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen.